Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. When exercising power, the 16th president's stocky and sphinx-like secretary of war could demonstrate a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Personally honest, he could be unforgiving and given to histrionics when he thought them necessary. And again, when required, warm-hearted, selfless, and patriotic. In charge of the Union's land-based operations, he made tough decisions and did so with little regard for those affected by those decisions. His mission was to win the war, and he pursued that purpose with relentless fury. In doing so, far too many simply remembered him as the unloved Secretary of War. In the pantheon that was Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, this is the story of his Mars. This is the story of Edwin McMaster's Stanton. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. To appreciate his effective and sometimes ruthless ways and means as Mr. Lincoln's Secretary of War, one has only to be reminded of a few of his experiences in pre-war courtrooms. Haunted and embittered, by the loss of a daughter and wife, and the suicide of his younger brother, all within an eight-year span, his career as an attorney became an obsessive universe. Before a jury, winning was everything. If he had to be rude to win, so be it. He browbeat witnesses and other attorneys, and was not above theatrics if it gave his argument an edge with a jury. Once, defending a man who was charged with first-degree murder by poisoning, Stanton drank the same poison in court, which made him throw it back up, all just to show the judge and jury the poison could not be retained. He won the case. In another instance, a man accused of theft chose Stanton from a crowd to represent him. During his trial, the accused mumbled, laughed, looked absent-mindedly about the courtroom. Stanton argued the man was unstable, insane. The judge, moved, agreed. Freed, the judge went so far as to compassionately help the man exit the courtroom. Soon thereafter, all learned the client's lawyer had coached him from the very minute he had been selected at random from the crowd. Yes, Edwin McMaster's Stanton. He was born Monday, December the 19th, 1814, to physician David and Lucy Norman Stanton. With a younger brother and two sisters, he was the oldest of four. 
At 10 years of age, he suffered the first of what would be lifelong asthmatic seizures. Some brought him to the point of convulsions. Though lighthearted, he was quite mischievous. With Darwin, his younger brother, he visited neighbors, and the two enjoyed shocking them with snakes coiled around their necks. He often slipped in and attended to his father's unwitting patience. Once he prescribed apple butter to a woman who complained of foot problems. Later, she reported the apple butter treatment did her corns well. At the tender age of 13, he lost his father. Three years later, off he went to Kenyon College, one of only four colleges in Ohio at the time, and 13 west of the Alleghenies. Bishop Chase, the uncle of Abraham Lincoln's future Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, founded the school. An avid reader of William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, School was shelved beginning of his sophomore year when his family's financial woes forced his departure. Back home, he turned to clerking and served as a handyman to a a local bookseller. Those jobs took him to Columbus, Ohio, where he received notoriety for questioning the death of a young girl by the name of Ann Howard demonstrating his later penchant for going over the top to verify her passing of cholera, he dug her up. In 1833, he returned to the place of his birth, Steubenville, Ohio, to read law and to fall in love. He and Mary Ann Lamson were married the last day of the year, 1836, His honeymoon included a 125-mile ride to his new home by means of a stage sleigh. Stanton remembered it, as he put it, the brightest, sweetest journey of his life. The two moved to Cadiz, where he began his law practice. If we visited with him at that time, we'd find a stocky man who was nearsighted, clean-shaven, and with hair that always seemed disheveled. There in Cadiz, Ohio, he joined the local chapter of the Anti-Slavery Society. His time there was short, and in October of 1838, he and his wife returned to Steubenville, where on a Wednesday, March 11, 1840, their first child, Lucy Lamson Stanton, was born. Like so many from that time and era, she was not long for this earth. The next year, she died of an undisclosed ailment. In August of 1842, a son, Edwin Lamson Stanton, entered the world. More encounters came his way. For the next winter, he met a man who would influence the rest of his life, Salmon Portland Chase. An ardent abolitionist, he was known as the Attorney General of Runaway Slaves. Though Stanton was passionate about the cause, his position was far more moderate. That meant he kept his opinions to himself. Tragedy found him again on Wednesday, March 13, 1844, when his beloved wife, Mary Ann, died from what was called a bilious fever. With the loss of his first child and now wife, he sank into deep grief, almost insanity. However, 
The Mexican War jerked him back into reality. A Democrat, Stanton maintained the party line. He supported the war, but was uncomfortable about the possible annexation of conquered territory. Though he took this stand, he tried to enlist, but his asthma kept him from serving. And then death once again tugged at his elbow. His younger brother, Darwin, fell ill, a malady that affected his brain, to the point that the younger Stanton, on September the 23rd, 1846, ended his life by cutting his own throat. The third personal loss took its toll. With the loss of a daughter, wife, and now brother, the light-hearted Buckeye turned cold, stern. The world was a cruel one. To try to begin anew, he moved to Pittsburgh in 1847. There, in his legal practice, he kept his political opinions to himself and refused to be pulled into the world of politics. Already aware of what histrionics he was capable of using in a court of law, one should not be surprised that Stanton loved loopholes. Here's an example. A man in Lisbon, Ohio, was fined for driving down the town's main street with brakes on, which rutted the road. The young attorney defended him and won the case when he proved his client was going up rather than down Main Street. Yet another. In 1850, a company built a 90-foot bridge above low water level. To make the point that the bridge was too low, he chartered the steamboat Hibernia, which had 85 feet tall smokestacks. He ordered the vessel to run at full speed and deliberately crashed the ship into the bridge, collapsing its superstructure. As these cases infer, a once playful young Stanton now practiced cold, calculated intensity. Despite this pessimism, he fell in love again, marrying Ellen Hutchinson, Wednesday, June 25, 1856. He was 41. She was 26. The two moved to Washington City, where he began what became a successful practice of law. On May 9, 1857, their union was blessed with the birth of a baby girl, Eleanor Adam Stanton. Despite the growth of his family, an opportunity arose out west, and Stanton headed to California, where he settled land claims. Though away for an entire year, his legal expertise netted him a handsome fee of $25,000, a lot of money at that time. Upon his return to Washington City, he accepted yet another case of notoriety. He defended New York Congressman Daniel Sickles, who had shot and killed Philip Barton Key, the son of Francis Scott Key. The act, committed Sunday, February 27, 1859, in public and within sight of the executive mansion. The younger Key had been a U.S. attorney for the district and had been found in bed with Teresa Bagiola Sickles, the attractive wife of the New York congressman. With Stanton's counsel, Sickles was acquitted for his act by reason of temporary insanity, a judicial precedent in a murder trial.
And speaking of insanity, the nation was in the throes of rampant sectionalism. And whether he wanted to or not, Stanton was pulled into the vortex of politics. With Abraham Lincoln's election and James Buchanan's, the current president at that time, soft stance on secession, several resigned in the 15th president's cabinet, and that included Attorney General Jeremiah S. Black. On December the 20th, 1860, at just 46 years of age, Stanton read in a newspaper that he had been selected by Buchanan to replace the absent Jeremiah Black. He was reluctant to do so, for he made around $40,000 a year, and this would be a substantial pay cut. But the nation's need compelled him to accept, though coming on board only after receiving assurance from Buchanan that he would uphold the Union. As 1861 began and Fort Sumter took center stage in the nation's latest trial, Stanton advised his president to maintain Major Robert Anderson and his garrison in Fort Sumter down in Charleston Harbor. Concerned that Buchanan was waffling, Stanton leaked cabinet discussions to friends of the Union like New York Senator William Seward. Willingly, Stanton played both sides of the fence— supporting Buchanan by feeding his confidence, but simultaneously preparing Unionists if Buchanan caved in. As to the newly elected 16th president, Stanton was energetic in his disdain for him. He called the new president the original gorilla and that giraffe. The two had first met when, back in 1855, Lincoln assisted in the McCormick Reaper case. Throughout that trial, Stanton made a point to be rude and snobbish to the future president. No surprise, he had little confidence in the rail splitter and thought his friend William Seward would have made a far better president. When Lincoln took office and Civil War began, Stanton thought the new administration fumbled badly. With Union defeat at Bull Run, the now former Attorney General believed national misfortune and disgrace was the result of Lincoln's running the machine for five months. In the summer of 1861, Stanton met another Democrat, Major General George B. McClellan. The two talked regularly and agreed that Lincoln's leadership was shaky at best. Both shared suspicion and traded rumors about Lincoln's then-Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. Most interesting, since Stanton served as a special War Department counsel to the War Secretary. As to a looming issue, the Negro question, both he and McClellan agreed the war should only be a crusade to maintain the Union, a rebellion, not a revolution. Strange, then that with Stanton's support, Cameron suggested using black troops. Without Lincoln's permission, the Secretary of War put it in a report and published it. Fearing reaction from still loyal slaveholding border states, Mr. Lincoln ordered its recall. With growing reports of corruption in the War Department and now this, the president wanted Cameron out and gave him what he really wanted in the first place a diplomatic ministry in St. Petersburg. 
Before he left, both Lincoln's Secretary of State William Seward and Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase suggested that Stanton, a Democrat, take the vacated position. Chase, a fellow Buckeye, supported him. Seward was his advocate because, like he, Stanton was a moderate. McClellan also urged him to accept Lincoln's invitation, but Stanton's wife countered with, don't do it. It would mean giving up a law practice that by that time brought in around 50000 a year. The cabinet position paid an annual salary of $8,000. Now keep in mind, Stanton, more than likely, was quite aware of his financial situation. After all, throughout the 1850s, he had chased wealth, traded principle in favor of self-advancement, and avoided controversy. Yet, on Thursday, January 16, 1862, Edwin McMaster Stanton took over the office of Secretary of War. Task before him, daunting. First, he had to restore prestige to an office that had been tainted by Cameron. It helped that he maintained a healthy balance between soft war McClellan and Republican radicals who wanted the conflict to bring about fundamental change. As to the others within Lincoln's cabinet, he got along with all, save Navy Secretary Gideon Wells and Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, who called Stanton a great scoundrel. With an energy that stunned Washington, Stanton plunged into the challenges of his new position. He reorganized and expanded the War Department. Understanding the importance of railroads and telegraph, he immediately began to utilize them. He meticulously combed through previous contracted firms and got rid of shoddy ones, took over responsibility for internal security from Seward State Department. He set up a war board and dove into the mastering of military organization and administration of armies. His energy? Boundless. And changes were immediately noted. Where before there had been a casual or leisurely-like atmosphere, now the War Department hummed with activity. Report forthwith was scrawled across everything. Those under him learned quickly that their new boss was excitable, animated, and possessed a volcanic temper. Each morning, promptly at 9 a.m., he arrived at the War Department building. The doorkeeper served as an early warning system. Sighting Stanton's approach, he would turn and shout, The secretary! And all jumped inside. Quickly, many learned that Stanton despised favor seekers and political generals. To reinforce that fact, once Mary Todd Lincoln who did not care for Stanton or his wife, Ellen, and that, by the way, was enthusiastically returned, sent a card, then letter requesting personal favor. Stanton first tore up the card, tore up the letter, and then visited the woman he called a hellcat and read her the riot act. President himself once wrote a letter on behalf of Stanton's own nephew, Benjamin Tappan Jr. The Secretary of War denied the request. 
Within the vantage point of his office and its duties, he began to see, analyze the work, and calculated maneuvering by a former confidant, McClellan. A once warm relationship cooled. Staring as he often did at a huge map which he ordered and placed on a wall near his desk, Stanton grew restless with McClellan's constant delays in the field. While Little Mac's Army of the Potomac sat, there were Union victories in February and March of 1862 at Forts Henry and Donaldson, Roanoke Island, North Carolina, Bowling Green, Kentucky, Pea Ridge, Arkansas, and New Bern, North Carolina. Some credited McClellan with the success. Some, Secretary of War Stanton. Stanton credited aggressive commanders and knew Little Mac was not cut from that cloth. When McClellan finally stirred in late March for what would become the Peninsula Campaign, both Lincoln and Stanton wanted enough Union forces left behind to protect Washington City. McClellan reported 77,000 prepared to do just that. Stanton, however, learned that in reality only 19,000 were left and so reported that number to Lincoln. Stanton, much to his disgust, realized that enemies not only wore Confederate gray, but came in the form of soft or hard war advocates. Quite honestly, the stink of politics could not be removed. Democrats were angry that radical Major General John C. Fremont had been reappointed and that, in their opinion, the War Secretary intentionally denied Little Mac reinforcements and supplies. His own boss, Mr. Lincoln, frustrated him when he made decisions without informing his secretary. And in addition, his wife complained about his absence, and simultaneously he had a sick child at home. And yes, he made his own share of mistakes. In April of 62, believing the war was won, the secretary closed all recruiting offices on the 3rd of that month. Then came military reverses, and he had to reopen them June the 6th, 1862. During that two-month lapse, he was busy and used the time to revitalize undermanned regiments. But there were many who believed the closing was an intentional ploy to undermine popular McClellan of support and troops. After all, some believe Stanton was a cabinet member under a Republican president, and wasn't McClellan a Democrat who might win the war and then possibly run for president? In late June of 1862, Stanton offered an olive branch. In a letter to McClellan, Stanton wrote, No man had ever a truer friend than I have been to you. And little Mac wrote back, Maybe I have been wrong about you. In truth, both lied. To his wife, McClellan wrote, Stanton is the most unmitigated scoundrel I ever knew, heard, or read of. And there was more. If Stanton had lived during Jesus' lifetime, Judas Iscariot would have remained a respected member of the fraternity of the apostles. The sad part in all of this, as it always has been throughout the ages, is that the ones who had to bear the horrific fruit of all this bickering and divisiveness was the common soldier. 
To heighten Stanton's personal woes while all this went on, Stanton's young son, not quite nine years of age, James, died. His passing did not bring sympathy, for when those in the North learned that McClellan and the Army of the Potomac were forced to retreat from Richmond, most blamed Stanton. Many believed he had deliberately sabotaged McClellan. It was then that Lincoln submitted he needed a uniformed presence in Washington City. Stanton was wary but offered no resistance. So, on Tuesday, July 22, 1862, 47-year-old Major General Henry Halleck, who had, by the way, had a run-in with Stanton when he was out in California, was chosen to serve as General-in-Chief. So many individuals and agendas, and yet all were united in one thought by now. McClellan had to go. Stanton and Lincoln wanted Halleck to do the releasing. But the general-in-chief saw through that and wrote his wife, they want me to do what they are afraid to attempt. With Halleck in place, Stanton's role was embarrassingly diminished, and tough times continued. With a second Union defeat at Bull Run, Manassas, the Secretary of War prepared for the potential evacuation of the capital. And while doing so, he and Salmon Chase began to gather signatures asking for the removal of George McClellan, or else form a new cabinet. Attorney General Edward Bates, Salmon Chase, Interior Secretary Caleb Smith, and Stanton all signed it. Secretary of State William Seward was absent. The Postmaster General Montgomery Blair was not made aware of the move and Wells agreed but would not sign. The cabinet met on September the 1st, 1862, and again on the 2nd, with Lincoln, who before the petition could be presented, stunned all by announcing that he put little Mac back in command in the face of the immediate crises, Lee's invasion of Maryland. The revelation meant the document to remove McClellan never left Stanton's pocket. After the tactical draw at Antietam Creek on the 17th of September, decisive victory in McClellan's la-la mind, the young Napoleon returned to his brashness, and it was he that demanded that both General-in-Chief Henry Halleck and Secretary of War Stanton be dumped. To his wife, McClellan wrote on October the 31st, I think it will end in driving Stanton out. If I can crush him, I will, relentlessly and without remorse. To bolster his move, he wrote to his friends at the New York World and told them to, as he put it, open your batteries on Stanton as soon as you please. Yet, as in many circumstances, McClellan was delusional. As soon as the last state election was held in the North, November 5th, 1862, a resigned Abraham Lincoln relieved McClellan of his command the very next day, as well as Major General Don Carlos Buell, who served out in the West. The message from Washington City was clear. Delay, inactivity would no longer be tolerated. Now came the question, who should fill those command voids? In the east, Stanton pushed for Ambrose Burnside, but as it turned out, he was luckless. 
His drive to Fredericksburg was damned when crucial pontoons to cross the Rappahannock River did not arrive in time. Fouled up by the mismanagement of field officers, no surprise that the Battle of Fredericksburg was an unmitigated Union disaster. And, of course, Stanton was castigated for supporting Burnside. A crestfallen general didn't help things when he tried to resign on the first day of 1863 and suggested the Union cause would be aided if Halleck and Stanton resigned as well. That same day, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which included that black troops would be accepted, trained, and armed. Some applauded, but the general mood throughout the North was the opposite. And yes, Stanton was blamed for that, too. It was all enough for the secretary to consider resigning, but rather he dug in. Perhaps that decision was reinforced by one Union officer that caught Stanton's eye, Major General Ulysses S. Grant. Assistant Secretary of State Charles A. Dana said of Grant that he was absolutely honest, doggedly determined, and direct in purpose, intelligent, and well-versed in military matters, and lacking in political aspirations. Someone who could fight, think, and grow. Stanton needed someone like that. Since May of 1863 brought a new Union reversal in the East, it came at Chancellorsville, when the man who replaced Burnside, Joseph Hooker, was whipped. Confidence torched. A supportive Stanton tried to convey the battle was merely a reversal, not an end. But the blow to the Federal commander was severe. Another Confederate invasion of the North soon followed, and with Hooker's confidence and support wounded, another command change was made. The new Army of the Potomac commander did not please radical Republicans like Salmon P. Chase because Major General George Gordon Meade was a Democrat. And to add to the nation and Stanton's woes, this was also the first summer of the war for a northern draft. We all know Meade was victorious at Gettysburg, but unable to pursue and crush the defeated Confederate Army, both Lincoln and Stanton came down hard on Meade when news hit Washington City that Lee's wounded army had slipped back into Virginia. There would be more disappointment, more worry. Came in late summer of 1863 with Major General William S. Rosecrans' defeat at Chickamauga. His federal army retreated north back to Chattanooga. And now came word that, besieged by Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee, the all-important railhead in southeastern Tennessee might be lost. That news prompted the only cabinet meeting ever convened at the corner of 17th and Pennsylvania, which was the War Department. To reinforce Rosecrans, Stanton wanted to send 30,000 reinforcements west, and they would be taken from the Army of the Potomac. In the wee hours of the morning, Stanton gathered and met with three railroad representatives. Around 2 a.m., he made the decision to move two entire Federal Corps west, both under the command of Major General Joseph Hooker. Forgetting about sleep, Stanton immediately began to iron out the intricate details for finding routes. 
He had them by the end of the next working day. On September the 25th, 1863, the first troops began to move and did so in less than 48 hours after Rosecrans' disturbing message from Chattanooga had arrived in Washington City. To facilitate the move, some 8,000 blacks were put to work. They changed the entire gauge of the Louisville and Lexington Railroad so that differing train gauges would not delay troop transfer. By the morning of September the 27th, 12,600 men, 33 cars of artillery, and 21 of baggage had moved 412 miles. In just under 10 days from the first appeal for help, over 20,000 men, 10 batteries with horses and ammo, and 100 cars of baggage had moved some 1,200 miles. It remains one of the greatest logistical feats of the war, and Edwin Stanton orchestrated it. Yet, word arrived that Rosecrans might still evacuate Chattanooga. Now, it was more than a question of numbers and logistics. It was a question of leadership, a question of command. Again, Stanton moved. He telegraphed Grant and ordered him to Louisville, Kentucky, and racing to meet him, the Secretary of War. As he sped westward, Stanton ordered the locomotive's engines wide open. Such was the speed and daring that dishes crashed. A concerned passenger yanked a bell to slow the train, only to have an enraged Stanton countermand it. With frayed nerves, all arrived, and the Secretary of War, for the first time, met face-to-face with U.S. Grant. Stanton was at his best. Decisions with Grant's input were made. Major General George Henry Thomas was placed in charge of the forces at Chattanooga, and Grant was named to lead the Military District of Mississippi. With the Confederate siege finally broken, the Union crisis was averted, and with it, Major General U.S. Grant headed east to become the nation's first three-star general since George Washington. Though Lincoln and Stanton found their general, there was still much work to be done, and not necessarily on military battlefields, but on political ones. And in that realm, the Secretary of War unabashedly used the power of his office to maintain his president and the Republicans, and U.S. Grant. Realizing there would be heavy fighting in the spring of 1864 and many of the three-year enlistments would soon expire, Stanton ordered the following to keep men in uniform or entice others to volunteer. He offered a $400 bounty, 30-day furloughs, designed a chevron to designate veteran volunteers, and allowed regiments to keep their old number and organizational standing. It all worked. Some 136,000 veterans re-upped and agreed to stay in service for the duration of the conflict. Grant's promotion to general-in-chief and presence fostered positive chemistry between the secretary, Grant, and Halleck, who stayed on to serve as chief of staff. Stanton was far more relaxed with Grant in charge, as evidenced by this note from Grant to Stanton when the former took the field. 
Should my success be less than I desire and expect, the least I can say is, the fault is not with you. And in direct contrast to earlier issues with McClellan, again from Grant, there will be no turning back. I intend to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Yet, as always, problems arose, this time from an unlikely front, from two newsmen who concocted a story which the New York World and the Journal of Commerce printed, a story called Grant's Overland Campaign, a flat failure. To counter losses, 400,000 more men would be needed, according to the story, and a national day of fasting and prayer would be proclaimed. The two reporters' motive? They wanted the bad news to tank the stock market and allow them to play it. Discovered, Stanton was in no mood for tolerance. The two found themselves in prison at Fort Lafayette in New York City's harbor. The two papers were shut down and their editors arrested. One was the world's Manton Marble. Remember that name. As Grant and Sherman hammered at Confederate resistance in 1864, Mr. Lincoln and his cabinet began discussion on how to win the forthcoming peace. When the president made public his moderate reconstruction plan, the so-called 10% plan, Stanton opted to support it unconditionally, even though many of his close friends opposed it for its leniency. One of those included Salmon Chase, who was now godfather to the newest member of the Stanton family, a daughter, Bessie. When the man whom Stanton once called the original gorilla was renominated, the Secretary of War was pleased, for he supported the brutal war Grant and particularly Sherman and Sheridan were waging. Stanton wanted the war over, and he wanted a second term for his president to accomplish just that. Again, Stanton used his office to make sure Mr. Lincoln and his National Union Party would have a second term. Realizing that Indiana was an important swing state, some 15,000 Hoosiers were furloughed, allowing them to vote back in their home state. Men from Ohio and Pennsylvania also found their way home to cast ballots. In the field, voting was also planned. As accommodating as the secretary had been for those men, he was correspondingly tough on those who supported the other ticket. Twenty pro-McClellan quartermaster clerks were dismissed, and when Stanton learned a behind-the-lines Union colonel voted against a pro-administration candidate, that Union colonel was demoted to captain and sent south. As returns rolled in on the day of the national election, Lincoln carried every state save Kentucky, Delaware, and New Jersey. The soldier vote for the ticket of Lincoln and Andrew Johnson was 119,754 to McClellan and George Pendleton's 34,291. Mission accomplished. The president was reelected. But Mr. Lincoln almost lost the services of his tireless and loyal Secretary of War, for it was during this election time, for about three weeks, Stanton was down with an illness that almost claimed his life. 
Perhaps the downtime while he recuperated allowed him to reflect. And once back at work, he admitted to the president that for some time his secret wish was to be a Supreme Court justice. Lincoln told him he couldn't spare him. When Grant learned of Stanton's desire to move to the Supreme Court, he appealed to him to stay at his post, even to the point that the lieutenant general left the front and returned to Washington City, where, in a meeting with Lincoln, Grant pleaded with the president to keep Stanton at his post. Timely support from powerful people, yet there was disturbing news from the Deep South. Though not completely over his illness, Stanton traveled south to Savannah, where for four days he visited with a victorious Sherman who had voiced disapproval of the federal government's Negro policy. The time there was good, and at the visit's end, the two thought they had resolved their differences. On Stanton's return trip, he stopped off to visit recently captured Fort Fisher and Wilmington, North Carolina. The great civil war was nearing its end, and yet Stanton realized the debate over Reconstruction was growing. Radical Republicans took him to task over his alliance with Lincoln and the lenient 10% plan. But on the 9th of April, 1865, a message arrived that, for a short time, drove the storm clouds away. A 16-year-old telegraph officer in the War Department W.E. Kittles of Boston got the wire that Richmond had fallen. It arrived the same day that Grant and Lee met at a quiet place called Appomattox Courthouse. As Lee and Grant met, Stanton, with his message that Richmond had fallen, met with his president. The two embraced. His iron mask torn off, the tough Secretary of War, realizing his task had ended, offered a prepared letter. It was his resignation. Lincoln refused to accept it. There was still too much to do. Mr. Lincoln's Secretary of War had been the right man at the right time. Unlike many who surrounded him, he never thought himself a great man. However, his organizational skills had been magnificent. Through his tough leadership, the North, if need be, had gathered enough supplies to fight for another three years. Oh yes, there had been mistakes. He was slow to change in medical and ordinance issues, but he did understand the power and importance of the railroad, the telegraph, and the trumpeting and powering of morale by use of the press. He supported the creation of a new military award, the Medal of Honor and instituted conscription, absentee voting, initiated the first signs of Army staff organization, and pushed for emancipation and black enlistment. With war nearing its end, the war secretary allowed himself a brief moment of great satisfaction. But that was interrupted when the New York world fired a barb. Editor Marble printed that Stanton, as he wrote, could not have made a great figure in ordinary times. Maybe it made him reflect to earlier times. Remember, if you will, that in the beginning, Stanton held contempt for his president. Then extraordinary times turned that contempt to respect, and now at the end, perhaps even love. 
No, the relationship was not as amiable as Lincoln's with Seward, but the two, Lincoln and Stanton, were more intimate and frank as evidenced by this story during the course of the war. A petitioner arrived at Stanton's office who had been sent directly to him from the president. He had a written order from Lincoln, and Stanton was to comply. A short while later, the petitioner returned to Lincoln's office and reported Stanton had denied the request and so returned with a message. Relayed, Stanton had called the president of the United States a damn fool. To the petitioner, Lincoln said, Did Stanton call me a damn fool? Well, I guess I better step over and see Stanton about this. The petitioner may have taken heart, but Lincoln's last line took care of that when he said, You know, Stanton is usually right. Flushed with victory, the president and the first lady decided to go to the theater the night of April the 14th. Among their list of invitees, the Grants, and yes, the Stantons. Both declined. And so at home, after 10 p.m., Ellen Stanton received a message and shouted, Mr. Seward is murdered. Her husband's answer, Humbug, I left him only an hour ago. Regardless, a hack was called, and the Secretary of War made his way to Seward's residence. There, he and Secretary of Navy Gideon Wells, who had arrived as well, found mayhem and learned of the tragic events not only at the Sewards but at Ford's Theater. The two made their way to the Peterson House, where the mortally wounded president had been taken. All through the rain-soaked, dreary night, though grief-stricken, Stanton was calm, grim, and decisive. In a small room just off from the makeshift bedroom, he alerted all forces in the Washington City Military District. He gathered witnesses and information, stopped all railroad traffic headed south, and forbade all fishing vessels from touching the southern shore of the Potomac River south of Alexandria. And he was there when the 16th president passed. At 7.22 and 10 seconds Saturday morning, April 15th, in the stuffy and crowded room, the silence and finality of the moment were reportedly broken by his words. Now he belongs to the ages. His commander-in-chief was dead, yet the war was not at an end. There was still much to be done, though pressed. Joe Johnston and his Confederate army was still a viable force down in North Carolina, there were reconstruction issues, and yes, there was a new president who faced backbreaking responsibilities. Congress was not in session, and as Secretary of War, still in charge of the nation's security, Stanton was literally in virtual control of the government. At 8 p.m. in the evening of the 21st, Grant rushed to the War Department to meet with Stanton. It seems that Down near Durham Station in North Carolina, Sherman had unintentionally given terms to Joe Johnston which gave insurrectionary governments recognition, that gave immunity to far too many, and allowed Confederate troops to deposit their arms in currently seceded state arsenals. Alone, it was bad, but with everything else going on, Stanton blew up. 
He immediately dispatched Grant to Raleigh with orders to take command. He wrote out a nine-point argument on why Sherman had run afoul. And in his excited and angry state of mind, he feared Democratic copperheads would applaud Sherman's terms and embrace him as their darling. And in his volatile state, Stanton even went so far as to question the loyalty of the man who had victoriously marched across Georgia and through the Carolinas. Though Stanton's questioning of Sherman's loyalty was way over the top. The weight of informed opinion as to Sherman's terms as dictated to Johnston sided heavily with Stanton. In his own defense, Sherman explained he extended what he believed were the wishes of the recently deceased Lincoln and apologized for his mistake. Then, the other shoe hit the floor. Sherman learned of Stanton's nine-point argument, which had made the papers, which questioned his loyalty. And it was his turn to blow up. Meanwhile, following Stanton's explicit orders, Halleck officially countermanded Sherman's terms, and the political-military jousting began. When accepted terms emerged April 26th, the same terms Grant extended to Lee at Appomattox, public sentiment now shifted toward the man who was in uniform. To many, Stanton seemed the ogre once again. With the conflict almost at an end, now began Reconstruction politics, and it proved most troubling. First, Stanton learned a movement had been instigated by former friend Salmon Chase and Major General Benjamin Butler to oust him from his cabinet post. Then a second storm front from Sherman. Angry at Stanton for his charges made privately and publicly, and at Henry Halleck, Sherman's first opportunity to sling arrows surfaced when Halleck, a former ally, invited him, Sherman, to stay at his Richmond residence as the general returned to Washington City from North Carolina. Sherman not only curtly declined the invitation, but warned Halleck that he should go into hiding, as his men who were marching north with him might insult the chief of staff. And to add to the acrimony, the radically controlled Congressional Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War ordered both Grant and Sherman to appear before them. Seething with anger, still, Sherman defied the order. And the redhead wasn't done. On Tuesday, May 23, 1865, the Army of the Potomac paraded down Pennsylvania Avenue for the ground review. The next day, the parade was reserved for Sherman's Western armies. Sherman, on horseback, led his men down the crowded avenue and by the reviewing stand. When he passed, he turned his horse to the side, dismounted, and headed into the reviewing stand filled with dignitaries, which included the new president, cabinet members, military heads, and the like. He snapped to attention before President Andrew Johnson saluted him, then shook his hand. Next was the Secretary of War. It went as badly as one could imagine, these two walking human volcanoes. Stanton extended his hand. Sherman stared directly into his face, 
and refused to extend his. Stanton, his face immobile, dropped his hand, and Sherman moved on to shake hands with Grant, then took his assigned place to watch the rest of his men pass by. Stanton was willing to forgive, but not retract his statements. Didn't matter to Sherman because he didn't want Stanton's forgiveness. The next day, an uncertain and perhaps embarrassed Mrs. Sherman sent flowers to the Stanton household, even visited them a few days later, but without her husband. Pride, ego, and the lingering question about what to do with the freedmen all figured into their personal battlefield. And while this was going on, the secretary continued to head, with iron control and icy resolve, the manhunt to track down those involved in Lincoln's assassination. With alleged conspirators, Louis Payne, Davy Harold, Mary Surratt, George Atzerolt, and countless others in custody, military courts tried all, even though civil courts were in place. Stanton made sure of that. Also aware that federal judges were reviewing the legality of all this, Stanton, who felt no remorse for any of the accused, sent everyone that was not hanged on Friday, July 7th of 1865, outside the jurisdiction of civil courts. That meant that rather being sent to Albany Penitentiary in New York, all were shipped off to dry tortugas at the southern tip of Florida. The Secretary of War even targeted John T. Ford and his theater. He shut it down. For these iron-booted tactics, the general public condemned Stanton's handling, and more fuel was heaped upon the fire of those who wanted him out. Under a new chief executive, Stanton thought about giving them what they wanted, his resignation. But pressing issues like the Native American situation in the Great Plains and the French in Mexico kept him engaged, and truly, he wanted to see the fruits of Union victory extended. At first, that was fine with President Johnson, but cracks soon appeared. Though he considered himself a moderate, Stanton tired of Johnson's inconsistencies and was incensed when he learned of Southern stubbornness to accept defeat and make changes. Now, personally on the question of Negro suffrage, Stanton did not accept the black man as his equal, but thought he should vote. President Johnson did not. All this presented quite a quandary for one who seemed to be able to get along with those of varying opinions, but inconsistencies in Johnson's policies made it extremely tough for Stanton. The secretary could gauge and react with someone if he knew where they were coming from, but waffling, baffled, frustrated him. So, of course, tensions mounted. In March of 1867, and challenging President Johnson, the Radicals of Congress passed the first Reconstruction Act and Tenure of Office Act, both designed to curb the power of the chief executive and his efforts to reconstruct the South. Johnson vetoed both. Both were overridden. When the president learned that Stanton had leaked information from the executive branch to the congressional radicals, which helped them overturn his presidential vetoes, 
The separation was complete. Came to a head Saturday, August the 5th, 1867, when Johnson ordered Stanton to vacate the office of Secretary of War and turn over keys to Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant. Stanton's response came quickly. He would allow Grant to take over, but only as interim. As the final word for his dismissal, he would wait for Congress and their final word when they reconvened in December. Rather than stew in Washington City, he, with only $4.76 in cash, borrowed 3000 and he and his family headed north to tour New England. The old adage applied, out of sight, out of mind. While away, Grant, as interim Secretary of War, ignored Stanton. When Congress reconvened, they moved to act on Stanton's removal by using the provisions of the Tenure of Office Act. On January 13, 1868, another Saturday, the radical Republican-controlled U.S. Senate sent for Stanton and asked him to return to his cabinet post. Caught in the middle, Grant, who feared violation of the Tenure of Office Act, which could mean a $10,000 fine and five years in prison, well, he vacated the office. The next day, at 10 a.m. on the 14th, Stanton showed up at the War Department and resumed his duties as Secretary of War. This was too much for Andrew Johnson. In his mind, Stanton was little more than a tool of the radical Republicans, and unlike Grant, in whom the president could dominate, Stanton would never allow that. So, in this combative political chess match, Andrew Johnson, on February the 28th, 1868, responded to Stanton and Congress's move by naming 63-year-old General Lorenzo Thomas as his new Secretary of War. When Stanton learned of this, he blurted that Thomas was, in Stanton's words, only fit for presiding over a crypt of Egyptian mummies like himself. Still, the unwitting general went to the War Department, climbed the stairs to the third floor, and at 11 a.m. knocked on the secretary's door only to find that Stanton had barricaded himself in his own office. He refused to leave. And that very night, a one-word message reached him. It was from Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, and it simply read, Stick. Here was a delicate situation, confrontation between the executive branch, President Andrew Johnson and his Secretary of War, Lorenzo Thomas, and the legislative branch who sided with Stanton as Secretary of War. And for Grant, who was riding the fence between radicals and moderates, well, he waffled. Grant laid low. For the man who would be the next president of the United States, he may well have longed for combat with R.E. Lee and his Confederate forces. At least then, Grant knew they were clearly the enemy. Lorenzo Thomas was equally frustrated. One night during all this, as the general returned home from a dance, and I might add was quite hungover, he was visited by the police arrested on orders from Stanton, dragged before a judge who was pro-radical and therefore upheld the charges. Though arrested, 
Thomas, emboldened by supporters, went to the War Department the very next day, where Stanton was still holed up with several of his friends, and Thomas tried to arrest Stanton. It was almost comical, to the point that Thomas, referring to his late-night arraignment, said, The next time you have me arrested, please don't do it before I have something to eat. The comment seemed to break the ice. Maybe the two realized their status as pawns in the political and constitutional chess match. Tension broken, the two had a shot of whiskey, and that led to their sharing the bottle. At 12.30, Thomas left, and by now, impeachment proceedings against Andrew Johnson had begun, and the government of the United States was practically in limbo. While it labored, Stanton remained at his post until May 26th. While locked in his office, his wife at first balked at the ridiculous nature of the political antics and refused to send clothes, food, and blankets. But finally, she came around. The first major vote in the developing impeachment proceedings came Saturday, May 16th. Needing a two-thirds vote of the Senate on the first of 11 charges, Johnson, by one vote, escaped conviction. Ten days later, on Tuesday, May 26th, a second vote was held. And again, one vote short of the required two-thirds majority. After that failed second vote, just before 3 p.m., Edwin Stanton voluntarily gave up the War Department to interim E.D. Townsend. And then on Saturday, the 30th of May, permanently, to Major General John Schofield. Schofield, under the lame or more aptly put, wounded duck Andrew Johnson, was little more than a glorified clerk. A relieved and exhausted Stanton prepared to become, once again, a private citizen. It was then that the United States Senate threw him an, if you will, dog biscuit. It passed a resolution which praised his wartime and post-war work, six years in the service of his country and during its greatest crises, a period of service that left him almost broke. After a few short jaunts and aborted plans, he moved with his family to Pittsburgh, and from there, on the 23rd of September, 1868, back to the place of his birth, Steubenville, Ohio. In the 1868 presidential election, he supported Grant, despite the fact that the Republican candidate had largely ignored him since May. And so, Stanton, again a citizen, returned to his law practice. He accepted a few cases, but then his health broke. Despite his declining physical condition, Grant offered the former Secretary of War a diplomatic mission to Mexico. Stanton declined. As a tumultuous 1868 neared its end, Stanton's asthma returned with a vengeance. Wearied and often sick, he let it be known that he had always wanted a position on the bench of the Supreme Court, and more than a few, 38 colleagues and 118 representatives, spoke on his behalf to President Grant. However, Manton Marble of the New York World, with whom he had gone head-to-head back during the war, didn't want that to happen and went so far as to pen and publish that. 
To him, Stanton was nothing more than, as he put it, a sick, spoilist, and asthmatic patriot. Despite the attack, on Saturday, the 19th of December, 1868, on his 54th birthday, Stanton was nominated for a seat on the nation's highest court. Congress approved his candidacy without the usual committee referrals. To Grant, the grateful new justice wrote, It is the only public office I ever desired, and I accept it with great pleasure. But fate would be cruel. Recently, he had suffered coughing fits that lasted for hours. As Christmas 1869 approached, he was weak. No matter, the Stanton family prepared for their first family holiday together since 1861. They all gathered in Washington City. On Christmas Eve, Stanton was too ill to come downstairs in the house where they congregated, so his four children and wife, Ellen, went upstairs to his bedside. In the last hours of Christmas Eve, long after the children had retired, he, as Chris Kringle, dictated this letter to his wife. I have just come from beyond the Rocky Mountains and arrived here at your house. I have a long journey yet to make before daylight, and many things to distribute among the good children between here and the Atlantic, so that I have time only to say a few words of love to you and leave in your stockings the gifts intended for you this Christmas. I'm glad to see that you are all growing finely, and during the past year have been good children. Ellie, I am afraid, is growing too fast for me to make her any more visits unless she turns out to be an uncommon good girl. She must learn to govern her temper and be patient to her brother and her little sister. And if she is so, I shall always be glad to stop and make her a Christmas visit. Lewis has been a very good boy and minds his mother very well. I hope he will continue to do so, and that when I come again, he will have learned to read very well. Bessie has generally been as good as any little girl that I have seen on my journey, but she cries too much when she gets angry. If she quits that, she will be a great favorite of mine. And now, my dear children, it is time for me to be going. I give you all a kiss, wish you a Merry Christmas, and hope to see you all well and that you have been good during the year when I make my next visit. Goodbye, Chris Kringle. Afterwards, in only a matter of hours, he passed away and, like Lincoln, now belonged to the ages. He was only 55. Soon thereafter, his wife Ellen received a note from Robert Lincoln, who remembered how Stanton had been so kind to him the night of his father's assassination. Adding to Robert Lincoln's kind words, eulogies rolled in. But there was also more than a few who had been victims of Stanton's anger and gruffness, and even in death, refused to forgive. William Sherman and Gideon Wells attacked him in their memoirs. And not surprisingly, so did New York World editor Manton Marble, who wrote, All men die, and death does not change faults into virtues. Indeed, Stanton could be rude. He could be vicious. 
But he also literally worked himself to death in the service of his country. So much so that after Stanton's death, President U.S. Grant remarked that he, in Grant's words, was as much a martyr to the Union as Generals John Sedgwick and James McPherson. For Edwin Stanton, maybe all this weighed in on him as his health sank, the same as many throughout time, late in their lives, when they think back and reflect, try to explain what they did and did not do, why they acted in one way or the other, trying to find sanity in the insanity that is all too often a part of life itself. Late in his life, Stanton wrote, In my official station, I have tried to do my duty as I shall answer to God at the great day, but it is the misfortune of the station, a misfortune that no one else can comprehend the magnitude of, that most of my duties are harsh and painful to someone, so that I rejoice at an opportunity, however rare, of combining duty with kindly offices. Regardless, for all of his service to the country during Civil War, Edwin McMaster Stanton remains an almost tragic Shakespearean figure. More often than not, portrayed and historically remembered as simply the unloved Secretary of War. It is often said that necessity is the mother of invention. That was particularly true during the American Civil War when both the Confederacy and Union chased and embraced technological innovation. That pursuit produced an encounter that in the course of a few hours erased centuries of tradition and naval warfare. When next we gather the story of the first encounter between ironclads, the story of the Monitor in Virginia. It is always such pleasant news to learn that from those of you who so kindly listen, find favor and want to support us. So we welcome new patrons, Ron Linfante from Chattanooga, Lisa Bowman from Harlan, Indiana, and Brian Walsh from Euclid, Ohio. To you, Ron, Lisa and Brian, thank you so much for your kindness and for thinking of us. You are appreciated. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.